most of Europe had fallen to the Nazis. Hitler's forces were poised to invade Britain and snuff out one of the last major obstacles to his plans for world conquest. Into this troubled time, one man arose to lead the nation to seek victory, no matter the cost. In his first speech as Prime Minister, Winston Churchill said, We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny, never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Churchill believed that victory was the only policy to pursue. But he knew that it would only be achieved at great cost. He knew that victory would require holding out stubbornly until America joined the fight and tipped the scales in favor of freedom over tyranny. In a later speech, a few months later, after the evacuation at Dunkirk, he said this, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Churchill and his famous V for victory hand gesture is the great historical icon of victory. Today's passage is all about victory, victory in this life and victory in the life to come. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. If you want to use one of the Bibles there provided in the, in the, the, the chair racks, that's on page 708, 708. While you're turning to 1 John chapter 5, let's recap our, our sermon series through this little book. John uses basic, simple language Yet he often says very profound things. So we're calling this series Basics for Believers. We also came up with our very own periodic table for the basic elements of true Christianity. All throughout this book, we see various tests for each of these elements. There's the truth test, what we believe. The light test, how we live our lives or our morality. And then there's the love test, who and how we love. Another way to think of this is preaching to the head, the heart, and the hands. The head, the truth. The heart, love, and the hands, light. If the tests show that we don't have these three basic elements in our lives, we probably don't have true Christianity. Today's passage touches on all three tests, but we see them all through the lens of victory. Follow along as I read 1 John 5, 1-5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The Greek word for victory appears four times in this passage. The root of that word is very similar to the word Nike, the Greek goddess of victory. Some of you might wear that uh, name on your clothing from time to time. The Roman version of this goddess is Victoria. Here, this word is translated as either victory or overcome. It is the same word that John uses seven times in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation when he recounts Christ's messages to the seven churches. To each church, he makes some form of promise to those who overcome. The word we translate into victory or overcoming could also be translated as conquest or conqueror or conquistador, if you like Spanish better. John is describing Christians as conquerors and the Christian life as one of victory. We have two simple points today. How do we have victory and live victoriously? Have victory and live victoriously. Point number one, have victory. How can we have victory? What is the key to victory? What strategy can we use to win victory? What are the requirements of a conqueror? Well, first of all, letter A, be born. Be born. First, we must be born. I know it sounds pretty simplistic, but it's true. This passage mentions being born of God three times. Notice the first half of verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. There you have it. Those who are born of God are victors. They're conquerors. But what is it that they overcome? What is it that they conquer? The world. Now, some of you might be thinking of the old cartoon, Pinky and the Brain, about two lab rats that try to take over the world each night. And now some of you will have their, their theme song running through your head the rest of, your, of this sermon. You're welcome. <laughs> Victory over the world. What is the world? Well, remember our sermon on 1 John 2, 15 through 17, when we learned that we should not love the world? The world is the world system that opposes God. Those who have been born of God will overcome and are overcoming this evil world system. It may not always feel like it, but they are and they will. John mentions being born of God twice in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. John is alluding to an important biblical truth, the new birth. When someone truly becomes a Christian, something radical and supernatural happens. That person is transformed from the inside out. They become a new creature. Remember Jesus' secret uh, conversation with Nicodemus? He was the religious ruler. Uh, John records this in chapter 3 of his gospel, this secret meeting. There, Jesus makes it very clear that the new birth is necessary. It is not optional. Jesus said to Nicodemus very clearly that you must be born again in order to see heaven. 
The term born again should not be thought of as a political label or a nickname for an over-caffeinated, overzealous evangelical. It is a biblical term that is essential for being a true Christian and for experiencing true victory. But how can we know if we've been born again? Letter B, believe. Believe. We believe. Notice again the first half of verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now look at verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Notice how the words faith and believe are used almost interchangeably in this passage. There's a little song that I love to teach uh, children in children's ministry. It's titled, "Is Faith is Just Believing. Faith is Just Believing. The title really says it all. Faith is not just vague optimism or cultivating a sunny, positive outlook or generic spirituality. It means believing someone or something based on the authority of someone that we trust. Well, believing what? What are we supposed to believe? In this passage, two specific truths about Jesus. One, that He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the promised Savior. And two, that He is the Son of God. We must believe in His deity, that He is God. So here, again, we see the truth test. True Christians must believe certain things about Jesus Christ. These are important truths about Jesus that we must believe in order to be born again. The most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16 says, Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. And this is just not just a mental assent to theological truths. To believe in Christ means to rely upon Him and His work on the cross. You must not only trust that He is the Savior, but that He is your Savior. I like how Kyle often asks people what they're banking on. Martin Lloyd-Jones also liked to talk about faith as banking on something. To believe in Christ is to bank our eternal souls on who Christ is and what He accomplished on the cross, and not on our own goodness or good works. Friends, if you're here today and you are not certain that you have been born again, please talk to one of us, talk to Kyle, talk to me, talk to one of the other members here, reach out to the church through the internet, but don't leave here today. Don't finish this, this podcast or this video without knowing that your sins have been forgiven. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ in faith, and you can be certain that you have been born again. Now notice an, an interesting grammatical point in verse 1. Notice how the word believes is present tense, while the phrase has been born is past tense. This is the same as in the original Greek. The new birth precedes belief. We believe because we have been born. This is the only way. Spiritually dead people cannot believe until they have first been reborn. Whenever I study the Bible, I often find it helpful to draw down, to write out little lists or draw little diagrams. So based on these verses so far, I came up with this sketch. The arrows show relationships. The new birth leads to victory. The new birth also leads to belief or to faith, and faith also leads to victory. This little sketch shows what having victory looks like. 
what is to the left of the new birth shows the status of a victor, and it's based primarily on the head, what we believe. Soon we will build out this diagram to the right uh, and show what the life of a victor looks like, and we will talk about the heart and the hands. So this is how we have victory. This is how we become conquerors of the evil world system. We are born again. And we know that we have been born again because we believe in Jesus. As Christ said, you must be born again. And as Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, once we become victors in Christ through faith, how should we then live? What should we do with the rest of our short time on this earth? Well, point number two, live victoriously. Live victoriously. What does it look like to have a life of victory? To live the rest of your life in light of the victory that has already been won for you in Christ. I have three sub-points based on this passage. Each are things that we are commanded to do, but each of these, there are each things that should come naturally to us to some extent if we're true believers. And yet they're never easy. Here we, have, we see three ways to live victoriously. Letter A, love God. Love God. As Christ affirmed the first and great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Remember our recent look at gospel-centered love in chapter 4? What is the source of our love for God? God's love. We love because He first loved us. Do you love God? Or if you're honest, do you resent Him because of tragedies and injustice in the world, because you feel God's moral demands are too hard, or because the idea of, a, of God punishing someone is frightening? To delight in God is both a command and an evidence of true Christianity. This is what much of John Piper's ministry is all about. His ministry is named Desiring God, and his most famous quote is, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. Our love for God brings great glory to God. And, we get to, and as we get to know God through Christ and through His Word, we increasingly see that God is worthy of our love. But how can we love God? How can we stir our cold, selfish hearts to love Him? By reminding ourselves of His greatest act of love, the gospel. As we saw in chapter 4, God manifested, He dramatically revealed His love in sending Jesus to satisfy, to propitiate God's wrath against sinners so that we could have life through Him. Love for God leads to other aspects of victorious living. If we love God, it will cause us to love others. Let, let her be, love others. The second half of the great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And here, John is focused in this book and in this passage specifically on our love for other believers, others who have been born of God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. If we love the Father, we will also love His children, our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we love the begetter, we will also love the begotten. We've seen this time and again during this series in 1 John. If you claim to love God, if you claim to be a believer, and yet you hate other believers, something is wrong, and you should be concerned for your soul. 
We have a special duty to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to want what is best for them, to want to encourage them and meet their needs, to want to be with them. Now let's update our diagram. The new birth results in loving God and in loving those born of God. This part of the diagram deals with our heart, who we love. God's love produces a love for other believers, and a love for God's people is evidence of a love for God. Which of these three tests does this remind you of? The love test, right? True believers will love God and will love other believers. But there is one more way that we live victoriously. Letter C, obey God. Obey God. Not only do we see the love test, but now we see the light test. Walking in the light, for John, means walking according to the truth, in a, living in a morally upright manner, striving to live in a way that pleases the God we should love. What we believe affects who we love, and it also affects how we live our lives. Look at verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. If we love God, we will want to obey God. This is not talking about being saved by our good works or by our performance. The Bible is clear that we are saved by faith alone. And in this passage, John is clear that the victory that overcomes the world is our faith. Obedience is the result of faith not faith itself. This is also not talking about sinless perfection. It's important to remember the difference between justification and sanctification. While true believers have been justified or declared righteous when they first believe, the process of sanctification growing in righteousness is long and difficult. As we have already seen in this sermon series, true, true Christians fulfill the light test. They do not walk in darkness, but walk in the light. Their lifestyle or pattern of living is generally characterized by obedience, not rebellion. The love of God within us compels us to obey. In one sense, obedience is something that the Holy Spirit accomplishes in the life of every believer. But in another sense, we have a responsibility to actively pursue obedience and not just be passive. What commandments are we to obey? Well, we know from the book of Acts and from Paul's writings and from Christ's own words that the Old Testament Jewish ceremonial laws are no longer binding on believers today. But we know that from the commands of the New Testament and through common sense, that the universal moral laws articulated in the Bible are our guideposts for living a life that pleases God. We have negative commands, such as abstaining from marital infidelity and other sexual sins, deceit, theft, unjustified violence, drunkenness, and disrespect for parents and other authorities. We also have positive commands to love God and to love others, to seek the good of others, to be kind, to share the gospel, to be respectful, to pay our taxes, to regularly gather with other believers. Are you obeying God? Is the regular pattern of your life obedience to God or disobedience? Is there some area of your life where you find it difficult to obey? But our obedience is not merely about our outward conformity. 
It is also about our heart attitude. Notice that John says, for the believer, God's commandments are not burdensome. John can say that God's commandments are not burdensome for the believer, not because temptation is no longer a powerful reality every moment of our lives, but because the love of God in our hearts makes us want to obey. Little children want to please their daddy. Christians should want to please their heavenly father. Now let's complete our diagram. If we are born again, we have victory and we will believe in Jesus. If we are born again, we will love God and love other Christians. And if we love God, we will obey God, including His command that we love one another. So that's what it means to have victory and to live victoriously. So what are some practical applications? What are some ways that we can apply these truths to our lives? Well, non-Christian friends, if you're here today and you're not sure you're a believer or you know you're not a believer, let me assure you, you can have victory. It all starts with being born. If you will turn from your sins and trust in Christ today. Don't leave here today. Uh, don't finish this video or this podcast if you're watching or listening somewhere else without knowing that your sins have been forgiven, that you have placed your faith in Christ alone, that you have been born again that you have victory in Jesus. Christian friends, are you living a life of victory? What's holding you back? Doubt? Laziness? Secret sin? I have some practical suggestions. Make it a habit to feed on God's Word, to confess sin, and to gather with other believers. What's your motive? Your motive is the love of God in Christ. Let the love of God in the gospel motivate you to live your life to pursue the goal of ultimate victory, no matter what discouragements and disappointments you face along the way. Is anyone here a little disappointed by what victory looks like in this sermon? When I mentioned living victoriously, did you think I was going to tell you about how you can have health, wealth, and prosperity? You know, a shiny new sports car, career success, fame, fortune kids with straight teeth, however you define victorious Christian living. Unfortunately, thanks to the popularity of the heresy that is the prosperity gospel, we often have a cheapened idea and concept of victory. No, Christian victory means knowing that your struggles and trials in this life have a greater purpose. It means devoting your short life to an eternally worthy cause. Victory now looks like ordinary faithfulness, Loving God, obeying God, and loving God's children. Victory then means a sinless, joyful eternity with our Savior. In this passage, the Apostle John lays out how we can have victory and how we can live victoriously. In one of his other books, the book of Revelation, John gives us a vision of ultimate victory. Jesus, the lion-like conqueror sitting on an eternal throne, receiving eternal praise from His people whom He saved through His lamb-like sacrifice on the cross. In the first part of that book, Christ urges His church to endure, to overcome, to conquer, to achieve ultimate victory. We began this sermon thinking about Winston Churchill's stubborn insistence on victory at all costs. He inspired a nation to hold out for victory until American might could make that victory a reality. 
In his Memoirs of the Second World War, which, yes, as a history nerd, I have on my shelf, in his Memoirs of the Second World War, Churchill describes his feeling uh, the night he heard that the Pearl Harbor attacks had happened and that he knew America would enter World War II. This is what he said. Hitler's fate was sealed. Mussolini's fate was sealed. As for the Japanese, they would be ground to powder. All the rest was merely the proper application of overwhelming force. No doubt it would take a long time. I expected terrible forfeits in the East, but all this would be merely a passing phase. United, we could subdue everyone else in the world. Many disasters, immeasurable cost, and tribulation lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. With America in the war, he knew that victory was certain, even though there would be many difficulties and disappointments before it was finally achieved. If we are believers in Christ, our victory has already been won. And while, we're, and while living a life of victory in this sinful, unjust, and cruel world is often hard, it is worth it. And we can rest in the ultimate hope that total victory is certain. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.